with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to spend a a couple of weeks talking about prayer, and as we focus on prayer, I thought that the most effective way or the most obvious way to address the subject of prayer was to look at what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Now, this is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the disciples' prayer. This is not a prayer that Jesus prayed. This was the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. So as we think about the topic of prayer, prayer is perhaps the most significant aspect of our union with Christ. Think about this. We have direct access to the creator of this universe. I've said this before. You could get on your phone and put a call into the mirror and probably not get through. You could call a senator, a governor. You could call a high-profile politician or a high-powered businessman, and you would not get through. But the creator of this universe, who spoke all that we know into being, is there, he's ready, he's listening And he desires to commune with us. We have direct access to God the Father. Prayer being so significant in the lives of Christians is still probably the most underutilized Christian discipline expressed through our lives. People will read. People will serve. But praying is difficult. Praying is a challenge. Praying is time-consuming. Praying is inconvenient. Praying can be confusing. And so we hear the mandate to pray. We know that we should pray. And yet we find it to be such a significant challenge that far too few actually pray in the manner that they should. It's an area in all of Christendom where the content of prayer can be affected by the culture of meism that we live in. When we are affected by the culture of meism, our prayers will tend to be directed towards ourselves, our needs, our desires, our wishes, our dreams, and we give very little thought to what is an actual biblical content of the prayer that we might pray. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5. It runs all the way through the end of chapter 7. It is said to be the most extensive single message that Jesus gave or was recorded in his earthly ministry. It is argued by some to be the most significant message that Jesus gave during his public ministry. And tucked in the middle of this is his instruction about prayer. Although the prayer technically begins in verse 9, I want to include verses 5 through 8 and then verses 14 and 15 as a completion of the idea of prayer in the context of Matthew chapter 6. So look with me in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 5 through 15, and then we'll look at our outline in six points. Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now in verse 9, pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus goes on to say, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So let's take a look at what Jesus says in this, and let's try to break this down in a way that we can understand and then apply to our lives. Number one in our outline is the preparation. The preparation is verses 5 through 8, and it's the context by which Jesus chooses to use his instruction in prayer. 
before one begins to pray, there are some basic components that are important. And since we are speaking to God, the creator of the universe, don't we want to get it right? Don't we want to follow some kind of a guideline, something that would at least fit within the bounds of what Scripture teaches? Well, I hope we would say, well, yeah, but I'm not exactly sure what that is. So I want to learn. I want to know. I want to be reminded. I want to be helped so that when I begin to pray, at the front of my mind is the reality that I am speaking to the Creator of the universe. Number one in this instruction that he gives as a part of the preparation is there is to be no hypocrisy. Verse 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Now, Judaism is very different from Christianity. In Judaism, there were several prescribed times throughout the day when you were expected to pray. So they would often go to the temple and they would offer up the prescribed prayer at the prescribed time. If they weren't able to get to the temple, then it was common for the Jews to stop wherever they were, whether it be in front of their house or on a street corner, and they would utter their prayers before the Lord. But the point that Jesus is getting at is the hypocritical nature of those that are praying. They were happy to pray in public, in the synagogues, or on the busy street corners, where they could be seen and heard by others, but there was no sincerity in the prayer. Prayer wasn't for God, it was for others to see. Now, by the time that Jesus' ministry began, prayer within Judaism had become incredibly ritualized. The wording and the forms of prayer were set, and they were simply read or repeated from memory. You didn't have any expression of your heart. You didn't have any expression of your love for God or your need for God. You simply recited something that was told to you by the rabbis or something that you had memorized, like the Shema, which is a great prayer. But if that's all you ever pray, are you missing anything? So the idea here is that these prayers could be given with almost no attention being paid to what was said. There was a routine. It was a semi-conscious religious exercise. You know what came to my mind when I was looking through this and working through this was what the Catholics often pray, the Hail Mary or the Rosary. It's something that they've memorized and it's ritualized in their lives in such a way there isn't a personal expression. It's something someone else has told them to pray and they're simply doing what they were told when they were told and there really isn't any authenticity into it. So there were prescribed prayers for every object and every occasion. There were prayers for light and darkness, for fire, for rain, for the new moon, for traveling, for good news, for bad news, and on and on and on. So the context here is there should be no hypocrisy in our praying. The word hypocrite means a pretender or an actor. So this negative reinforcement calls out those who are not truly seeking God, but are only praying in the public places so they can be seen and admired by others. And when someone says, boy, look at that guy praying, he's really going at it today. He must really love God. Well, their reward is paid to them in full in the adoration of other men. But what does God think about such praying? That ought to be at our heart of hearts. So in contrast to this hypocritical, hypocritical approach to prayer is in verse 6, this instruction to be authentic. But you, he says to the disciples, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see the contrast between the public spectacle and the private prayer in your inner room that nobody may ever see or know about is what Jesus is trying to identify and drill down in the hearts of people. You know, one of the silliest things we can do is someone says, hey, I called you, I missed your call. Yeah, I know, I was in my prayer closet all day long, man. 
I was really going at it. I prayed for an hour and a half. I prayed for every missionary that I know of in North America. Well, your reward has already been paid by the admiration given to you by whomever you have shared that information with. So the emphasis on prayer here is it is to be personal and it is to be authentic. It is driven by a relationship and not prescribed by a certain time of day or by a certain prescribed ritual prayer that you have in your memory. The attitude of prayer here is our need to be with God privately, communing with Him, recognizing who He is, expressing our individual need for Him, laying out our sin. Identifying our struggles, seeking to have his will lived out in our life. It isn't going through a prescribed ritual that is observed by men. It is us on our knees before our creator and our redeemer expressing to him our love, our need, and our commitment to him. Thirdly in this preparation is prayer is to be from the heart. Verse 7, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So it was very common in the day for these pagan religions that their prayers would be filled with long wordings. Just continue to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk because the more you say, the more sacred it is, the more righteous it is, the more meaningful and pleasing that it is to the Lord. There were sounds that they would make like chants, or they would mimic or repeat these sounds over and over and over. And you've seen these people who sit on the floor, and they'll have their legs crossed, and they'll have their fingers together, and they'll go, "Um." what does that mean? Our prayer isn't to be like that. Our prayer is to be from the heart, expressing in a relationship our love for God and our need for God. And so Jew and Gentile alike believed that long prayers were righteous and commendable and necessary to please God. And Jesus sets the stage for proper prayer against this backdrop. And what he says here is, do not be like them in verse 8, For your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's an interesting statement here. John Stott said that prayer is not to inform or persuade God, but to come before him sincerely, purposely, consciously, and devotedly. When we come to the Lord, he already knows what we need. So why then should we verbalize what God already knows. Well, God wants to hear from us. God desires to commune with us. He wants to spend time with us more than we could ever want to spend time with him. Think about that. God desires to spend time with you and me more than we would ever desire to spend time with him. Because he loves us so much more than we love him. Think about that. God, the creator of the universe, the eternally divine being, desires to spend time with you. I wonder if that reality would make any difference in those who are woefully lonely Convinced that no one loves them, no one cares about them, life is just meaningless. I wonder what it would mean for their life to know that the creator of the universe desires to know you. Well, prayer is sharing our needs, our burdens, the hunger of our hearts before our Father, who already knows what we need, but he wants to hear from us. Think about this as a parent. You know that little Johnny's had a bad day at school. He might have gotten bullied. He might have gotten in trouble. He might have hurt himself. You know that Johnny's got a problem, right? But when Johnny comes home, what you want is you want Johnny to come to you and say, Mom or Dad, 
I've got a problem. And when they do that, especially when they're little, they crawl up in their, in your lap and they put their arm around you and they might even cry on your shoulder and your heart just melts that this thing you love so deeply has chosen to come and bear his heart and his soul before you. And you desire that more than he ever will. How real does that become when they're 20? 30? And they're not coming around so much and they don't call so often and you don't really know what's going on? And you would give anything to have your little child crawl back up in your lap and pour their heart out to you. That's our Father. Prayer is our giving God the opportunity to manifest His power, His majesty, His love, and His presence in our life. And now we look at the formal disciples' prayer. Number two in your outline, the person of prayer. Verse 9a, pray then, In this way, our Father who is in heaven. You know, the person of prayer is the Father. He is the audience. He's the only one who might ever hear what you pray that really matters. If you're in a small group of people, we often pray what they think, what we think they need to hear or what they want to hear. Sometimes we think we need to say the right thing to impress them, but God is the only one who is to be our audience when we pray, of all the words that Jesus could have used to emphasize this object of prayer, he chose the relational title of the Father. Our Father. His Father. Not the eternal King, not the divine being, not the great and mighty one, our Father. Now, God as Father is not new information for the Jew. They have always related to God as the Father of the nation of Israel. But through century and century of disobedience and suffering, God's discipline, because of their disobedience, they had lost that sense of relational intimacy with God as their Father. In Jesus' day, remember, they were occupied by Rome, and they were living under Roman rule, and much of their life was compromised because of that. So the term Father communicates that sense of intimacy, one who loves and provides, one who looks out for and can be dependent on, especially since He is our Father in heaven. Unlike an earthly father who is influenced and affected by sin, unlike an earthly father who may not be somebody you admire, somebody that you don't really look up to, look up to, somebody that you don't want to emulate something that doesn't conjure up an idea of intimacy, we are to call upon our Father who is in heaven because He is different. He is perfectly concerned for us and desires to lead us in a holy and righteous life, always Always doing what is best for us. Always. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't like it, even when we have the audacity to disagree with it, God is always doing what is best for us. How could He do any different? Because He is holy and righteous and just, God will always what is, will always do what is right for His children. So God's eagerness to lend His ear, to lend His power, to lend His blessing, to the needs and the request of his children, if it serves them best and further reveals his purpose and his glory, God is all about that. And he is ready and willing to listen to that and to do what is needed to bring about his perfect plan in our lives. So this is the person of prayer. The object of prayer is our Heavenly Father. Number three, the purpose of prayer. I believe this is lost in our recitation of the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. The latter part of 9v, 9b says, Hallowed be your name. That word hallowed means to make holy. To make holy his name is the purpose of prayer. It is to bring glory to God. Our prayer has as its purpose to bring glory to God our Father. 
The name of God means so much more than just his titles. It encompasses the entirety of who he is, his attributes, his plans, his purposes, his will. Think about this. As we think about the attributes of God, He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is infinite. He is the creator. He is self-sustaining. But He is also holy and faithful and righteous and loving and just and kind and generous. And He is the object of our prayer. And it is His desire that our prayer would bring Him glory. Through His love and mercy and grace, He allows us to become his children and we call him father and we are to make his name holy and bring glory to him as we live our lives in conformity to his will. So a big part of our praying is our acknowledgement of our need to be conformed to his image. It is the honesty that we have with him and with ourselves that I am far from a finished product. I might be able to recite all the jargon. I might actually look the look. I might talk the talk. But God, my walk is far from you. I am in a constant need of a restorative work of your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And I pour myself out before you that in my life, in some small way, I might bring to you the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, self-sustaining, infinite creator, some measure of glory. Living in disobedience will never bring him glory and will not make his name holy amongst those around us. Our prayers are to be centered in the idea that we first and foremost want to make his name holy, to bring glory to his name, the one true God through the revelation of Jesus, his son and our savior. And we do that to the world who doesn't know who he is. Number four in our outline, the plan of prayer. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think the more proper name for this in our modern way of thinking is that We are praying for renewal to come to God's people. We are praying for heaven on earth. Think about this. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reference here to kingdom of God is a reference to his sovereign rule and his dominion over the world That he's created. Is God sovereign over this world? Yes, he is. So this is a request that God take claim to that which already belongs to him. It's the tension between God is sovereignly ruling over this world while he is temporarily allowed the impact of sin to run its course before he pulls the plug and inaugurates the consummation of his eternal kingdom. So his kingdom come is a call for the future rule of God, which is full of his presence and his glory right here on this earth. Your kingdom come. The day when the power of sin will be completely eliminated From our presence. When the presence of sin will be completely eradicated and the people of God will live under his sovereign rule. You know one of the reasons it's so difficult for us to live the kind of life that we desire to live for God? It's because the power of sin is all around us. We are constantly tempted and we are bombarded by the images that we see and the ideas that we hear. And somehow deep down in our flesh, they resonate and it brings back up to the service a desire, an an interest in the pursuit of something that isn't holy, that isn't going to bring God glory. And we fight that. There is a very powerful 
power of sin all around us and the presence of sin is everywhere we go. But the day will come when the future kingdom of God is established, when all of that will be put away and we will see him as he really is and we will live in the glory of his presence. There will be no sun. There will be no moon. There will be no sin. It will only be the people of God living in heaven on the new earth that God is going to create. Our prayer should always express a desire for the consummation of the kingdom to be realized where the will of God is prioritized and the sin-sick, sin-cursed world will be made new. Don't you long for a day like that? Don't you long for the coming of the Lord when all of this mess will be put away and we will live in the presence of God as was initially designed, that ought to be a part of our prayer. We pray for his kingdom to come, but in the meantime, we are to pray that his will be done in our lives just as his will is perfectly carried out in heaven. How is the will of God carried out in heaven? Perfectly and completely. But there was a time when it wasn't. Remember? When Lucifer, the most beautiful of all the angels God created, rebelled. And God kicked him and a third of the angelic beings out of heaven. And they have populated, their spirits have populated the earth as a part of the the satanic force and the spiritual powers that are out there deceiving us and leading us into sin. But his will is now being perfectly carried out in heaven. And Jesus prays that his will be done in our lives perfectly right here, right now, just as his will is perfectly carried out in heaven. So this expresses our desire for our lives to be conformed to the image of Christ as we battle against the desires of the enemy, and as we battle against the desires of our very own flesh. So our prayers are to be rooted in our desire for and our need for his will to be central in our life. So let me answer the question in reverse. Do we need center of our lives? Wouldn't our life be so much better if his will was the center of our life? So we could say theoretically, yes, we can say the correct Jesus answer. Well, I'll check that box and say, well, yeah, out of that. But is it really and truly the desire of our heart? You see, it is in prayer that we express that. It is in praying for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done in my life perfectly That is when we express that, and we express that in prayer. If this is what we really and truly want in our lives, for God's will to be the center, then we should be praying for it. So in this first section of this instruction, it is centered on God, our union with him as the Father, his name to be made holy by us, our desire for his kingdom to come, our desire for his will to be done here as it is in heaven. And I want to remind you what we talked about last week. As we look at our present reality corporately as a church, as you look at your present reality individually as a believer, and as we have articulated our desired future, and as you think about your desired future as an individual believer in Christ, we see the present reality, we see the desired future, our prayers must be centered in such a way that his will is prioritized so that we get from where we are to where we believe God wants us to be. And aren't there so many pitfalls in between? Aren't there so many distractions, so many obstacles, so many impossibilities, so many challenges? Yes. Yes, there is. And so every day we have to pray that God would do the work in us and through us that only he can do. We must pray that our Father's name would be made holy through our lives individually and corporately, that he would bring about his plans and his purposes in our lives and in this church to fruition as we pray for his will to be done perfectly as it is in heaven. Now, as we look at the second section of this instruction, this will focus on man and his relation to God. So number five is the petitions. 
Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. The petition is very simple. It's very simple. It's daily needs. Now, Jesus chooses to use bread because bread was a staple in the Middle East. Bread is a way of communicating what is the most essential. It is food so that we don't starve. Symbolically, it could be a part of our need for the bread of life. It could be for the word made flesh. But in New Testament times, bread could be very difficult to come by. Our prayers for daily food may seem unnecessary because we live in the land of plenty. We have a glut of resources available to us, and we, for the most part, don't ever pray about the need for food. We pray about, what am I going to get next? Where am I going to go? Who's got the best steak in town? I want to go there. We don't really associate with the daily need for food. So it's very difficult for us to recognize that and to connect to that. But think about this. The majority of our world will be considered a third world country. I guess only about a third of our world lives in any form of abundance. So about a third of our, about two thirds of our world lives with a very real need of having their daily food intake prepared and provided for them. So there's two aspects in this request that we're going to see. Give us this day our daily bread. The first is the request that God will provide. We should be reminded that all we have comes from him. Our abundance is simply a reminder that God has generously provided far more than we really need. You ever go to your refrigerator and you look at 15 different things to eat and you can't really decide? That's the abundance. If you're a hungry person, you open your refrigerator door, you'll eat whatever's there. Because you're hungry. And that's something that we have such a difficult time remembering and associating with. But we are to remember that everything that we have is the provision of God. We should never take his provision for granted. And we should continually ask him to meet our daily needs. The second aspect is that our request should be focused on needs and not the selfish, greedy desire for more. There's a segment within our professing Christian community that really sees God as a magical genie who is there to give to them everything that they want, everything that they desire, everything that their heart can imagine, because after all, you can do it, and I want it. So therefore, I'm just going to wait for you to give it to me. Name it and claim it. More is better, and I'll give you a little so I can get a lot back. And that is so far from what Scripture teaches. God is not a genie. God is not there like a waiter at our beck and call to bring to us or to do for us whatever it is that we want Him to do. He is the Creator. He is our Father, and we are to live our lives in submission to Him to do His will for His glory. Think about this. Poverty level living in the United States, which I think is around eighteen or twenty thousand dollars, in much of this third world that we third world world that we live in, is a world of abundance. What is poverty for us, how can anybody survive on that, is actually somewhat wealthy in two thirds of our world. We haven't learned how to get by with less because we live with such abundance. We live in nice homes. We're well-fed. We have access to medical care. We can basically vacation at a number of different places if we desire to do that. It should be very easy for us then to focus on spiritual things because our basic needs are met. But you know what occurred to me is that the tentacles of the world are very long and they're very strong and they're not easily broken. We often have a greedy nature in our prayers as opposed to being thankful for his faithful provision and meeting our needs. It is in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is in a life that is properly submitted to his will that we can appropriate the power of the Spirit to break the bond that materialism has on our lives. We are obsessed with stuff. 
If you don't believe me, just go out and look around in your garage. Go and look in one of the guest room closets you have in your house. Go down into the basement and you will see an abundance of stuff. Well, you know, I got that shirt. I haven't worn that in a year, but I like that shirt. I might need it sometime in the future. That's the way we are. We have an insatiable desire for more, but we need to backtrack from that. We need to acknowledge God's provision to meet our daily needs, and we need to focus our prayers and our lives on spiritual things. Number two in this instruction is daily forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this word debt is one of five words used in the New Testament for the word sin. There's a daily need for forgiveness. I had a conversation with a gentleman some time ago, and we were talking about spiritual things, talking about God and his holiness and God in his righteousness and justness and how different God is and our need for forgiveness. And I asked him, how do you feel about your need to confess your sin before the Lord? And he said something to the effect, well, I know I consider myself to be a pretty good guy. I don't think I have a lot of things to confess. Anybody that has a perspective like that has a very incomplete view of the glory and the holiness of God. You and I, (laughs) you and I have an incredibly long list of sin that needs to be dealt with on a daily basis. I believe that most of us commit sin in our life that we don't even know we're committing. And we're doing things that we might not even consider to be sinful. That's just how I am. That's the way I've always been. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean God's happy with it. As we commune with the Father, it is good to ask Him to reveal to us the sin that we are not aware that we are committing or the sin that we are not struggling to conquer. When was the last time In our prayer closet, we agonized over the sin that so easily entangles us. Have you been brought to tears over your inability to live the kind of life that you know God desires for you to live? Well, preacher, I know I'm not where I ought to be, but I'm a lot better than most of the Christians I know. I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't go there, and I haven't been unfaithful, and I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. Well, when we begin to defend our lives and justify the lack of a need to confess our sin, we've lost sight of who God really is. When we lose sight of the need to repent, we've got a problem. But notice the connection that Jesus gives here. We are to forgive as we have forgiven others. We are to seek forgiveness from God in the same way we forgive others. Uh Uh-oh, that's a problem, isn't it? Better yet, we are to forgive others the way God forgives us. The sad reality is that forgiveness is one of the most difficult Christian practices, and it has such a devastating impact on our relationships that many a many a family, many a many a church has been laid low by the inability, the unwillingness, the disobedience in forgiving sin. So here's the question. What if God forgave us the same way we forgave other people? Relational restoration would be constant and continuous if we forgave one another the way God forgave us. Fractured friends and fractured families would be a thing of the past. I wonder how many of the 50% of Christian marriages that end in divorce would be salvaged had forgiveness been expressed and received just as we have received it from God. Well, God, I'm so thankful you forgive me, but don't ask me to forgive him. Did you see what he did? Did you hear what he said? Hey, brother, I'll forgive you, but I'm never going to forget it. See, we have such a, such a shallow understanding and a shallow expression of forgiveness that our relationships suffer 
because of them. Well, Jesus is teaching us to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Christians and spouses and families forgiving one another would most certainly bring him glory. Thirdly, we see the need for daily deliverance. Verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this is a verse that is often misunderstood. The verb temptation here is also translated as the word trial or testing. And so when Jesus prays that that God not lead us in temptation, what does he mean by that? Well, we know that in God's holiness... He will never lead people, especially his children, into a place where they will likely succumb to sin. Think about this. Think about stopping on the corner and you got your 16-year-old boy with you and you go, look at that bar over there. Aren't those lights flashy? Aren't the people pretty? Why don't you go in there and see what you can find? Would you ever do that? God would never do that to us. God would never lead us into a place where we are likely to succumb to sin. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. This is not James contradicting Jesus. This is our lack of understanding what Jesus really means. But just before James said this, he also said, In chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So did Jesus mean temptation, or did Jesus mean trial? So why pray for something that God won't do, which is leading us into sin? Yet at the same time, on the other side of the coin, we are to rejoice when testing comes because of its spiritual result. It brings endurance, right? So the solution to this was first presented by the church, one of the church fathers named Chrysostom. It's hard to say. Chrysostom. I think that's right. Chrysostom. And this is a paraphrase of what he said. The solution to this issue is that Jesus is not speaking of logic or theology, but of a heart desire that causes a believer to want to avoid the danger and trouble sin creates. It is the expression of the redeemed life that so despises and fears sin that he wants to escape all prospects of falling into it, choosing to avoid rather than having to defeat temptation. Right? Isn't it a lot easier to not be tempted than it is to fight temptation? Right? So what happens when we're tempted? Oh man, that sounds so good. Oh, I remember the last time I did that. Oh, you know, it resonates with our flesh and it gives birth to the desire to do that thing, which brings about sin in our life. So here's the paradox of scripture. We know that trials are a means for our spiritual growth, yet we have no desire to be in a place that is going to exponentially increase our spiritual growth through a very difficult trial. That makes sense? God brings you into a period of great difficulty in your life, and he does so to purge us, to prune us, to grow us in our walk with him. And we say, God, I don't like this. God, I don't want this. God, I want you to take this away. But when it's all said and done, we thank God for what he did in us and through that circumstance, yet we never want to go through that again. Isn't that the paradox? It brings about great spiritual result, but we really don't want to go through it. So what Jesus is praying is that we are to pray that God will deliver us from temptation or from trial, so that we will not sin. This is what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will as you will. It's the same tension here. It's the same idea. And so although we don't want to go through the trial, we are thankful for the growth that it brings. And so this is the the sense of what Jesus is teaching us to pray. So when we honestly look at the power of sin and our own weakness in fighting against sin and our propensities to give in to sin, we should shudder at the danger of temptation 
or a significant trial, and we pray that God will deliver us in it or through it. So this petition is another plea for God to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves, that is protection from sin, deliverance from our weaknesses, and deliverance from our desire, our desires. So you'll notice that these final words we're going to look at, or excuse me, the final verses in that, verse 13, has some brackets around it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These words are not found in the earliest manuscripts, so there's usually some notation or some identifier, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't belong there or that it isn't accurate or correct. It's a very appropriate doxology that acknowledges the preeminence of God and our desire for him to be brought glory. Now, very, very quickly, the postscript here, number six, the last two verses. For if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Jesus emphasized this singular point of the prayer he taught because forgiveness is critical. It's an expansion of what was presented in verse 12. And this is what's very important for us to understand. These verses are not teaching conditional forgiveness. Jesus is not saying that our forgiveness from God is dependent on our forgiving of other people. If that were true, then salvation would be works-oriented and not grace-centered. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, there's two ideas here. It's a restatement of what was already said. Number one, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. How can we who have been forgiven so much be unwilling to forgive those who, comparatively speaking, have done so little? Now, let me pause right there and let me say this. I don't want to minimize the challenge that we face in forgiving the most egregious of sin. I'm not trying to wave a magical spiritual brush over the most degrading sin we could ever conjure up in our minds and say, well, you got to forgive just as God has forgiven you. I understand the difficulty. I understand the trial. And I'm not trying to minimize that, that kind of devastating experience in an individual's life. That's not the hang-up that most of us have. Our hang-up is, you offended me, and I am reserving the right to stay offended by you. And as long as I reserve the right to be offended by you, I am going to hold forgiveness at arm's length. Well, how would it be if God did that for us? Our experience of the vast, unending grace and mercy of God should compel us to be willing to forgive others. Now, the second idea in this is this. When we fail to forgive, we bring the chastening of God into our lives, and this is expressed in the idea of God not forgiving us. An unforgiving heart will close off the blessing of God in our lives because unforgiveness is sinful disobedience to his will. Since forgiveness is sinful disobedience, our heart will potentially be filled with bitterness and resentment and anger and other destructive attitudes, and we will very likely forfeit the blessing that is ours in knowing the Father in the way that we do and experiencing the full measure of his grace and his mercy towards us. The writer of Hebrews expressed it like this. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Look at that. No one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it, many be defiled. What is the grace of God? It is his unmerited forgiveness of a despicably wretched, sinful man. In the same way we have been forgiven, we are to forgive others. If we don't do that, we forfeit the blessing of God, and we find ourselves in a posture of sinful disobedience. You know, there's no shortage of example of how unforgiveness has ruined the lives of people. There are some in the medical field that will tell us that unforgiveness, that bitterness, that resentment, and that anger will manifest manifest itself in all kinds of physical symptoms, ulcers, migraines, and the like. So it is our responsibility 
as Christians, it is our prerogative as we give ourselves to him to forgive others as he has forgiven us. Would you stand with me, please? Let's read this together, shall we? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Father, how we thank you for the richness of your word. How we thank you for the way it exposes our need for you. The way it exposes to us perhaps the insincerity of our prayer, the indifference we have in communing with our Father who loves us. Maybe it's even our unwillingness to forgive someone who has offended us or wronged us or hurt us. But God, I pray that you would bring back to our minds, that you would drill into our hearts the truth in this prayer, that we would wrestle with its impact on us, that we would deal with the issues that are there that keep us from enjoying the vast mercy and grace that you offer us and then being willing to share that with others. God, we thank you that your power manifested by the Spirit who indwells us is able to give to us the victory that, that we need. God, I pray that we would believe that with all of our heart, that we would give ourselves over to your work, to your hands, to your will, to your plans and purposes so that we would be a people and individual persons who bring you glory in this world. Father, we pray that you would do the work that only you can do as we wrestle with the great God that you are who loves us and desires to be with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.